podcast. And we welcome you to the throwback Thursday edition of Alpha Ministries podcast. We decided we were going to do a little throwback Thursday. We got a whole, we got archives and archives full of past sermons and it's kind of going to kind of be random. We're not going to go in any particular order as I grab them and rip the CDs and burn them and upload them to the podcast. But this particular one is from August of 2011. So it's what 12 years old now. So we're going back decades. So as time goes on, we're going to dig deep into the archives of Alpha Ministries, and I'll give you some throwback Thursday sermons each Thursday. We'll try to make sure we do it each Thursday, and we hope you enjoy it. Um, this is John Glenn at Freedom Ranch, and he, I think at this particular series, he was going through in the, on Sunday mornings teaching the journey to freedom. So enjoy. This last week, also, we had uh, kind of a tough week. Needed that little reunion time before the week. Monday afternoon, I got a call uh, from Kingman White down in Lewiston at about 1 o'clock to tell me that Dr. Forbes, any of you know Dr. Forbes, he and Janice have been out here a bunch of times since we've been here to Church in the Woods. In fact, I was looking through some old pictures, and before we had any of this, all we had was a handful of picnic tables out here. Janice is sitting under an umbrella. It's raining. <laughs> She's sitting under an umbrella out here. And Doc Forbes had suffered a stroke here a couple months ago and lingered on and finally went on and graduated to be with the Lord here Monday afternoon. We had a service for him last Thursday. I just wanted to announce that to all of you in case you hadn't heard. Uh, Dr. Forbes rejoicing in heaven. And Tuesday night about 10 o'clock, I got another call. My brother out in Colorado. Our prayers were answered there. My mom has gone on to be with the Lord. She also graduated last Tuesday night. Her prayer was answered very peacefully, very calmly. Just... uh, well, she'd gotten her hair done. The week I was out there, the visitor, she'd gotten her hair done and dyed it and almost looked red. I mean, it was red, but the little clothes she had was red. I asked her mom, what would you get your hair done for? She said, I got my hair done because I want to go out in a flame of glory. <laughs> so she got her hair done, she got her makeup on, she got all that stuff going she was always had an attitude, a healthy attitude about going on to be with the Lord. She was looking forward to it, told me several times that she was looking forward to seeing Jesus. So uh, I asked the Lord, we prayed together, asked the Lord to do it according to His time, of course. Not trying to tell Him what to do, but asking for mercy. So she graduated without uh, any undue pain or suffering. And, Without any hassle, just had that dying grace. Her and Dr. Forbes this last week both went. I got to thinking, couldn't help but thinking, 
they're up there right now rejoicing and uh, hanging out together and talking and carrying on. And, and it just makes me more jealous. And I told my mom, I said, I'm jealous of you. You're going to be gone here before long. So uh, you're going to see Jesus before I do. So I appreciate your prayers and your support for both these families. George, do you have an announcement or are you just are you guarding? Now this would not happen in any other church. That white SUV out there right. is sitting in the perfect spon. The reflection goes straight into the camera. White one on the other side of the road. About twenty feet, we appreciate it. On the other side of the road. Okay. The white SUV over there just yeah, you just have to move it up a little bit or bring it over here in the shade. We have strange announcements here at Church in the Woods. You know, I haven't made some of those strange announcements in a long time because it's after 10, almost 11 years, a decade of doing this, I've kind of gotten used to it, you know. So I just take it for granted. I used to make announcements like I tell the parents that we haven't got a Sunday school and you're going to have to watch the kids because we got gators over there where that gal parked, okay, in that canal. And there's all kinds of, not all kinds, mainly just uh, coral snakes. I haven't seen a rattlesnake here, but there's coral snakes. There's a bunch of little harmless snakes running around. But in fact, one Sunday I saw a, a, a wave like you see at the football games. You know, when they make a wave, you know, they stand up and sit down and it looks like a wave going through the audience. I saw that happen here. It started in the back corner back there and they got up and then pretty soon these people got up and came over here and these people got up and then I saw the black snake come out <laughs> that side. So I was up here preaching one Sunday, just carrying on. I forget what I was preaching. And I was getting after it and I noticed nobody was looking at me. Now that's not unusual. I mean, people drift, you know, they look around and they, they play their little games with each other, you know, and you'd be amazed what I see from up here going on back there. Especially you guys in the back. See, I can see you back there. I got, I'm nearsighted, not far, far, I can see back there. But anyhow, I was just, I noticed nobody was looking at me. I turned around, and we just had a little video stage then. Didn't have all of this. I turned around. There's three little baby squirrels that came down out of that tree before we had to whack it off for the top. Came down out of that tree, came right behind me, and they were playing behind me. I mean, how are you going to compete with baby squirrels? There's no way about it. In fact, I, I got a little nervous, and I remembered that because just yesterday I was walking through here, and somewhere under this, this was the first building we put out here for the church in the woods used to be Grandma's Kitchen. Um, now it's a kind of a music storage room, but somewhere under there, or under here, somewhere, there's a calico cat with three little kittens. And I saw one of them dash through here uh, yesterday and said, oh no, here comes my competition. So I'm, I'm not going to be surprised to see some little kittens up here playing around. So if I lose your attention, I'll know exactly what it is. And while we're streaming this, by the way, we're streaming this, we're attempting to stream it again as we're practicing. Uh, and for those of you that are listening to me on the internet uh, right now, and those of you who are checking it out, if such a thing takes place, George has already been instructed to focus in on those cats, so you get a good look at it. All right? 
because everybody else will be looking at them too. So out here in the church in the woods, you never know what's going to happen, which I like it that way. I just finished a book. It was, uh, the title of the book was kind of interesting, kind of caught my attention right off the bat. It's called Pagan Christianity. That sounds like, what do you call that, an oxymoron? Like military intelligence, right? Political credibility. Those are oxymorons. Anyhow, pagan Christianity, and it's written by some well-known authors, some experts, Viola and Barna. And what they did was they traced back all of the current modern-day church practices. You know, like meeting on Sundays at 11 o'clock, singing music, having a prayer time, a special pastorals prayer, and various various practices of both liturgical and non-liturgical churches. That means the high church, the formal churches, and the informal churches. They just went through a whole book full of practices, things churches do. And they proved, beyond any shadow of doubt, tracing it back historically, how every one of those practices came from a pagan origin. In other words, they were practices that the pagans, the non-Christians, believed believed in and practiced in their pagan rituals and their pagan worship. Now that kind of disheartened me for a little bit. Did you know that? It kind of discouraged me because they kept using the first church as the example. You know, the first church, the first 300 years of church history was kind of a strange thing. They met in houses, they met uh, in public facilities, they met in the catacombs when they were persecuted underground in the tombs. They met in different places and they had a couple practices that are mentioned like baptism and they also had practice of the Lord's Supper or Communion. But beyond that, we don't really have any information in the, in the New Testament about what practices these churches did. So we assume that the practices that we have now, especially since they've been traced back to pagan origins, may be of question. May be question. Maybe we shouldn't do these things because after all, they had a pagan uh, origin. Like the celebration of Christmas, for instance had a pagan origin. The celebration of Easter also had a pagan origin. So should we not do these things because they had a pagan origin? Listen, everything you do has a pagan origin. Why? Because you were born a pagan by nature. You were born a pagan. We all were. So oh, no, no, I was born a Christian. Yeah, I know you were. You grew up in a Christian religion that had pagan roots. And what I'm getting to is the resolution in my mind, and I'm going to have to write these guys because they missed this point. That there is no pattern of the New Testament church and what a church does and the practices of their church. There is no clear pattern in the Scripture 
a succinct pattern that says this is what a church does. No. You can't find it anywhere in the Bible. Well, does that mean that God doesn't care what you do? Well, not necessarily. What's the one thing we've been studying since we've been studying John's Gospel? The law came by Moses, but what? Grace and truth came by Jesus. Right? And what's the one command that Jesus left us here to fulfill? That you love one another. We call that the critical event. Ironically, in this book called Pagan Christianity, they didn't mention one time what the church is supposed to do in terms of loving others like Christ or training people to love others like Christ. I'm going to have to write these boys instead of straight. But I want you to understand something. God doesn't pick a certain way for you to love people. And He doesn't pick certain church practices that you do as a group when you come together when you are the assembled, called out ones for you to do to love each other. You know why? Because that's left up to the direction, the personal leadership and direction of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, the Spirit of His Son living inside of you, producing His fruit, the first of which, by the way, is love, directs you, leads you, empowers you to love others like Christ. And so there is no set practice. So the net result of everything I'm telling you is no matter what goes on in a church, whether they have all of the bulletin and with all the liturgy and everything written out and Everybody does this at this time, and everybody does this at this time. No matter what kind of practices they have, whether they're formalized practices or they're just as loose as the church in the woods. No matter what goes on in the church, no matter what the church practices in that regard as to when they get together, when they gather together, the only thing that God's looking for and the only thing that He is satisfied with is that you all are loving each other. You're loving Him, and that love received from you by God is passed to others. That's what God's concerned about. So whatever practice we practice, whether it be singing songs or it be doing some kind of a, a meal like we had last week, or whether it be various kinds of training classes or situations or whatever type of music, it doesn't really matter. What counts is while we're doing it, whatever it is, we're loving each other. That's what makes any practice valuable to God. So it's regardless of what the church... Now, I know people argue about this, and they say, well, Christians, when they get together in the church, they ought to all do this. They ought to all follow this practice. And if they're not following this practice, they're not following the Bible. Well, they'd be hard-pressed, number one, prove that any practice comes from the Bible because the Bible doesn't say anything about the practices. Number two, the more important issue is that whatever practice you practice, whatever we as a group do, we do it unto the Lord loving one another. That's what sanctifies or sets apart our gathering, our church practice. 
We're going to practice something right now. I'm going to start opening our service with word of prayer and have these guys sing some music. That's another practice that came from pagans, by the way. I'm going to let them sing some music. Well, while we do this, we're going to, in our hearts, receive the love of God and give it to one another. That's what makes those practices valuable. It's the fact that we fulfill that new commandment Jesus left us with, that we love one another. So let's do that right now. Join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing on our service today. We seek to love one another. Father God, we come into your presence right now to thank you. We thank you for the abounding love that you have displayed through your Son, Jesus. The love that you have for us is unquestionable. The love that you have for us that is amazing. And we thank you for that love. That great love wherewith you loved us. And that while we were yet pagans, dead in sins and trespasses, you made us come alive. You created us as brand new persons in Christ Jesus. For by grace, your grace, we are saved. It's not what we do according to our practices. But it's your gift. Gift of God. Not of works, lest any of us should boast. And we thank you for that, Father. We thank you for your amazing love that transforms us from the inside out to be just like your Son, Jesus. And as we receive that love today, Father, we ask that your same Spirit that led Jesus and everything He did and everything He said, that same Spirit would now lead us personally and individually to love one another, to fulfill that command that Your Son Jesus gave us. So whatever we do, whatever kind of practices we exercise, we ask today that it be motivated by the love of Your Son Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Tonight, we're going to start the Journey to Freedom class again. Uh, this time we're studying the section called Power to Love. I originally entitled this Relational Empowerment. My burden in this class was just simply this. We know we ought to love one another, just like Jesus. But very few of us know exactly how to love one another. By loving one another, I'm not talking about liking each other. In fact, the hardest thing you'll ever do is to love somebody you don't like. So if you're interested in learning about how to love like Christ, that's what this class is about. It comes on the, at the end of the Journey to Freedom series. It'll be a 12-week course on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. You're all welcome to join us. We'll start it this Tuesday night. George, I told you specifically that we were going to wait until the following Tuesday night, but we're going to have to start this Tuesday night, so you're going to have to scramble. He's used to that. He's used to scramble. What I'm going to try to do is uh, videotape this class. We've got the Alpha Series on DVDs. We've got 12 Steps on DVDs. We don't have this one on DVDs yet, so we're in the process of trying to do that. So you want to be on a DVD, show up Tuesday night and we'll put you on a DVD. 
It'll haunt you forever. That's right. You go back and look at some of those original Alpha classes I did about 10, 15 years ago. Looks like my younger brother did them. That's because I've been rode hard and put up wet too many times since then. This Saturday, which I believe is the 20th, we'll have a recovery counseling training. Now, this is training classes specifically designed for those of you that are interested in a counseling ministry. Counseling ministry is just loving each other one-on-one. That's what it boils down to. It's a ministry that's led by the Spirit that you share with others that are hurting and you're available by the Spirit to confront them when they're misbehaving without condemning them. You're led by the Spirit to comfort them when they're hurting without enabling them. And you're led by the Spirit to support them with no strings attached. So if you're interested in learning how to do that in a crash course, uh, this Saturday at 9 o'clock we'll have the relational counseling class. So those of you that are interested in that, feel free to show up. You don't have to have any special registration, although it would be nice if you called Mary and told her, called the office and told them that you're planning on coming. We like to get some folks signed up. and It will also be nice for Grandma because Grandma tries to feed you lunch so you don't have to go anywhere. So she knows how many miles to feed. She knows how many times to cut the cake. Okay? So that's this Saturday, 10 o'clock, or 9 o'clock, rather. You'll all notice a table over there on your way to the building. If you went to the bathrooms, you walk right by that table. That's not a, a table where we're selling things. That's a lost and found table. These are things that have been left here over the weeks, months, sometimes years. And what I do is I have a yard sale about once a year of all the lost and found stuff. So if you go over there and you spy something that belongs to you, go ahead and scarf it. If you spy something you would like and you give people an opportunity to take it and nobody's picked it up, go ahead and scarf it. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to give it away. <laughs> right? So uh, Take note of that here before we leave today, all right? Also, there's an information table inside the building to sign up for a weekly newsletter. We have an email newsletter that's sent out every week. We need your email address if you uh, want to get on that newsletter. All right, these are all the announcements that I have for you right now. I want to get back to our study in John. This has been weighing on me for some time here. We're considering what I consider to be the greatest subject in all the Bible. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We've come to that portion in John chapter 19 in which John, the gospel writer, records for us the narrative of Jesus being crucified. Now in an effort to give you the proper background and setting for this, not last week, but the week before, I, I told you up front what the personal significance of this cross is to all of us. And it's double meaning. 
By double meaning, I'm not talking about a hidden meaning necessarily. I'm talking about the two aspects of the cross, and we'll be talking a lot more about that as we continue our study on the cross out of John's Gospel. There are two things that happened on the cross. Number one, Jesus died. Paying the price for your sins. You've all heard that, I'm sure, if you've been raised up in this country. It's practically impossible for you to grow up in America without some time hearing the fact, no matter who you are, where you are, what your background was, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And that's a highly significant, I call it the forensic side of the cross, because it's the legal side. Sin has to be paid for. The wages of sin is death, and somebody's got to pay for all the sin in the world. The good news of the gospel associated with this side of the cross is Jesus paid the price for all sin. Any sin that ever has been committed or ever will be committed, Jesus paid the price for that as He hung on the cross. As He endured those three hours of darkness, He paid the price. So that God is free to maintain His justice or His sense of fairness and forgive us our sins. Not hold our sins against us. He could send them away because they were paid for. But that doesn't really do justice to our sense of fairness in this regard. I've used this example before and I think probably it bears repeating at this point. If someone were to break into your house and rob you, steal all your stuff, and tear your house up, and in the process kill all your family members, and you, being distraught, wanting to have that sin paid for, watch them go to trial, be arrested, go to trial, and all of a sudden the judge says, I know you committed murder, I know you did all these sins, but I'm going to let you go free. You would be outraged, wouldn't you? It would violate your sense of justice. You would say, that's not fair. Just to let him go scot-free, that's not fair. And you rightly would be offended. Now in an effort to appease your sense of fairness or justice, the judge, seeing your shock, said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Instead of punishing this criminal here, this one who has committed the sins, instead of putting him to death, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to sacrifice my own son. The one that I hold dearest. My only begotten son. I'm going to sacrifice him. I'm going to put him to death so I can let this guy go free, okay? Say, well, I'm not sure I really buy that either. That doesn't quite sound fair either, does it? That's the problem people have when they only have half the gospel. 
It just doesn't seem fair. Why should they punish Jesus who did nothing but love people, who did no sin, who did nothing wrong, why should He have to die such a horrible death, a crucifixion, to pay for our sins? He was innocent. He didn't deserve to die. You see, our sense of justice is still just a little bit offended by that side of the cross. Even though that side of the cross is true, even though that side of the cross is necessary, it still does not complete the thought. There's another side of the cross that I want you to understand. That other side of the cross is that when Jesus died, the old person that you were, that person, that self-centered person that was born into this world on your birthday, that person who has an innate sense of worthlessness because you know you're not righteous. That old person that you were born naturally into this world as, that old person was crucified with Christ on the cross. So the old sinful person you were also died on the cross. Now, we hear an awful lot about Jesus dying for your sins, but we don't hear much about you dying on the cross with Jesus, do you? We get out of balance here because both sides are necessary. See, it's true that Jesus died to pay for your sins, but it's equally as true that when He died on the cross, You died with Him. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's go back to our analogy I started with. I actually was teaching this one time, and unbeknownst to me, there was a fellow sitting in the audience who had had that very thing happen to him. He was in a prison ministry, and He had taken an inmate into his home. He was training for the ministry. And while he was in prison ministering to others, this inmate turned on him, raped and murdered his wife, and stole all his valuables. He was sitting in the class. I didn't know it at the time. I was teaching the same thing. That the other side of the cross involves not just Jesus dying on the cross, but the other side of the cross involves all evil humanity dying. All the depravity of man dying. God putting to death 
the old natural person you were so that He could transform you into a brand new person. Getting back to our analogy, this is what it would look like. The judge would find him guilty. He said, instead of killing you, I'm going to kill my son with this miraculous benefit. That when my son dies, you're going to die too. That old sinful person, that self-centered criminal person you were, you're going to die too. And when my son is raised up from the dead, you're going to become a brand new person that never has sinned, is not sinning now, and never will sin. That's what it takes to make you the righteousness of God. The other side of the cross deals with what God had to do to make you righteous enough to hang out with Him. God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. None. He can't hang out with you unless you are absolutely righteous just like He is. The other side of the cross is what God did to make you righteous. To make you a brand new person. And He did it on the cross. It's not something you're going to do. Although I know your religion and your religious background will tell you, yeah, you can do it. You just have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You just have to turn over a new leaf. You just have to promise to be good. Never do it again. You just have to just say no. And you can do it. Just try harder to be a good Christian. And you can do it. And God will accept you because He'll see how hard you're trying. And God knows you ain't perfect, so He'll accept you. Some people call that greasy grace. It's really greasy law. It ain't true. God accepts nothing but His righteousness. He accepts nothing short of the glory of of Jesus Christ. He will have nothing to do with humanity other than in Christ. The other side of the cross we're talking about here and we're studying about is what God does to make you righteous. As Paul put it to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. God created you, new. When did he do that? On the cross. The other side of the cross is what it took for God to make you a new person. Old things are passing away, new things are coming. Paul was so convinced of that, he said, From now on, I will recognize none of you after the flesh. I'm not going to look at you as your old identity. Even no matter how hard you try to clean it up. That's not who you are. I will recognize no man after the flesh, meaning I'm going to look at the new person God has made you to be. That righteous person that's holy and without blame before Him. That's who I'm going to look at. That's who you are. And then he explains in verse 21 of that chapter. For he made him who knew no sin, 
That's Jesus. To be made sin for us. When did he do that? On the cross. Jesus was made sin for us. Why? Why, God? Why'd you do that? That the righteousness of God, His righteousness, His very character, that the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us. You see, what God did on the cross was not just to pay for your sins. He also made you a brand new person. That's why Paul gives testimony in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, right now, in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. See, there's another side to the cross here, folks, that I want you to see. It's an all-important side. Just as important as the forensic side, this other side, this unseen side that we see only by faith is that God made you a brand new person on that cross. Now, we'll continue this theme as we study the aspects of the cross, but today what I want to do is give you an overview we can read out of John chapter 19, John's version of the cross. And I say his version of the cross because there's three others that we have provided for us as well. Matthew records a version of the cross. Mark records a version of the cross. And Luke records a version of the cross. And so today what I want to do to give you a background, to give you the historical setting and to give you the proper background for a study of the cross, I want to give you the order of events, how it came down, how it took place. John highlights three main things in his, his story. He says that Pilate turned him over be crucified and he emphasizes the fact that Jesus actually fulfilled the scripture in two ways number one allowing them to part his garments and number two crying out I thirst while he hung on the cross So John gives us a fairly concise but important description of the cross. But I'm not going to just study that with you today. We'll use that as an outline later. What I want to give you today is the order of events as they transpired with the cross, beginning with Pilate washing his hands. Remember we left off with Jesus before Pilate. Pilate saying, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He's done nothing deserving of death. But the Jews insisting that he be crucified, crying out 
for blood. Finally, Pilate made a show of it by washing his hands in a basin in front of them and saying, I'm washing my hands of this. It's not my fault. I find nothing wrong with him. But you take him and do whatever you want to do with him. So he gave them permission to use the power of Rome to crucify Jesus. What follows after that is a series of events that I want you to be clear on. I want you to see how they fall out in order. The second thing that happens is the Roman soldiers took Jesus inside the Praetorium, which is a big courtyard, inside the governor's palace. And there they abused him. They humiliated him. And they beat him. It was there that he stripped him of his raiment and put a purple toga on him, mocking him as the king. It was there that they took a thorn bush, kind of like these that we have around here, and made a crown of thorns and mashed it on his head, drawing blood. It was there that they gave him a stick representing a false scepter of a king. And they would bow down to him and hail him as the king and then slap him. It was there that they would take the stick from him and hit him. They clubbed him on the head, mashing the thorns deep into his scalp, beating him to a bloody pulp. And then he took off the red toga and they put his clothes back on him. And they let him out to be crucified. The Roman custom was whoever was going to be crucified, the criminal would carry their own cross to their crucifixion. The cross being made of wood would be very heavy. A man who was strong and fresh might be able to carry that cross for a while. Jesus, having already been beaten up all night, was too weak. So on the way, they conscripted a man by the name of Simon who happened to be coming home from work. And they got him to carry Jesus' cross. On his way, following behind, crawling, on his hands and knees, bleeding. He looked around at the women who were wailing, kind of professional wailers, if you will. And he said, women, don't weep for me. If they've done this in the green twig, what are they going to do in the dry? Weep for yourselves because the day is coming when you'll cry for the mountains and the hills to cover you. They took him to Golgotha, which is the place of the skull outside of the city.
And then at 9 o'clock in the morning that day, they stretched him out and nailed him to the cross. Driving spikes through his hands and his feet. It was at that point that Jesus had to pray for them. And I say he had to pray for them because God had given his angels charge over Jesus. And had not Jesus forgiven them, the angels would have melted the flesh off their bones in a heartbeat as soon as his skin was pierced. So Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He wasn't just praying a religious prayer. He was praying the most extraordinary prayer. Setting the example for us. Right now, without even taking a lot of time to think about it, you have in your mind people who have hurt you. People that have offended you. People that have made you mad. And because it's been more than 30 seconds since they did it, that hurt has turned into a hatred. A hatred that you've blocked and put down deep in your soul and put a lid over it and assign some of your mental resources to holding it down, lest it bubble out. Some of you have nurtured that hate over the years. There's only one way to get rid of it. That's forgiveness. No, I'm not talking about forgiving that person that hurt you. That's not the forgiveness that gets rid of your hatred. Because you try that, it doesn't work, because then you think about them hurting you and you hate them all over again. I'm talking about you receiving forgiveness for hating the one that hurt you. You see, your hatred for the one that hurt you, neglected you, abandoned you, abused you, is no different than their sin toward you. And before you can forgive them, you're going to have to receive that forgiveness yourself. Jesus had nothing to be forgiven of, so He could quickly pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they nailed him to the cross. At that point, they tacked a sign above the cross that Pilate ordered. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, King Jews, in three different languages. John goes into a big thing here of how the rulers went back to Pilate and said, No, 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 no. Don't say he was the king of the Jews. Say he said he was the king. Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Live with it. 
And they raised those crosses up, sign on Jesus. And they put him in the middle. And two thieves on either side. At that point, the scriptures were fulfilled, particularly Psalm 22. I'll give you this as a homework assignment. I'll not take the time this morning to read it. Read Psalm 22. It's an accurate description of the crucifixion of Jesus. It's called a messianic psalm. You're all familiar with Psalm 23? Psalm 22 comes first. And while Jesus hung on the cross that morning, the soldiers started dividing up his clothes. And this one took this piece, 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 and and they came to his cloak. And they saw that it was garment that was woven all out of one. And they said, rather than rip this up, let's just cast dice and see which one wins. So they gambled for his clothing, his cloak. Here Jesus is in agony, hanging on the cross, probably around 10 o'clock in the morning. He looks down and the soldiers that put him there are gambling over his clothes. About that time, the mockery begins. Here come those boys that cried, Crucify him! Crucify him! They come by and they start mocking him. Oh, he's the one that said, Tear this temple down and I'll build it in three days. Mm -hmm. Look at him now. Naked, ashamed. Humiliated, crucified, a criminal. What's he going to do now? Doesn't look very powerful, does he? If that's true, come down off that cross and save yourself. And we'll all follow you. Others came wagging their head. Saying, oh, he saved other people. He can't even save himself. What kind of Savior is that? Still others came by, mocking him in a sarcastic tone, saying, and I'm going to put it in our language so you get the meaning, this guy must have really pissed God off. Because nothing this bad happens to somebody unless God is really mad at you. Jesus endured that mockery for several hours that morning while he hung on the cross in agony. I won't go into the graphic details of what it feels like to hang on a cross. But it's work. Because you you don't just hang there or you suffocate. 
you've got to hold yourself up so you can breathe. And every effort on your part to hold yourself up is excruciating pain. So your choice is pain or breathing. Pain or breathing. I tried to give him a little mild sedative, mild painkiller, he refused it. began to endure the mockery, even the Roman soldiers mocking him. And while all that mockery's going on, he looks down and he sees his mom. There's mom, Mary. She's with his aunt, who's also named Mary, and another Mary, Magdalene, who anointed his feet. And the disciple John is standing there with him. He says to his mom, Behold your son. He says to John, Behold your mom. From that day forward, John took care of her. Here he is, pulling himself up to breathe, in agony, caring about his mother. making sure she was taken care of. While at the same time, those mocking him were the two guys that were hanging on the cross with him on either side. They got into it, and then the one thief, he says, hmm, there's something else going on here. I tend to believe, although I can't prove it, I tend to believe it's when he heard Jesus take care of his mama. That he began to argue with the other thief. He said, look, we get what we deserve. We're getting what we deserve. You know it and I know it. But this man, he's done nothing. And he turned to Jesus. He said, when you enter your kingdom, remember me. Pulling himself back up. Excruciating pain. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. All this is going on before noon. Beginning at noon till three in the afternoon, the whole world was engulfed in total darkness. A time like right now, when it should be the brightest part of the day, kept getting darker and darker and darker and darker until you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was at this point that the light of the world remember John called him the light of the world back in chapter 1 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life became the light of man. He was that light, the light of the world was being made sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in Him. During those three hours of darkness, Jesus experienced death for every man, woman, and child that ever has lived or ever will live. Had you been standing there with your little Timex, you'd say, oh, it was just three hours. But he experienced eternal death in those three hours of absolute darkness. Taking upon himself the full penalty against all sin taking upon himself all of the wrath of a just and holy God against sin. During that time, he again fulfilled Scripture in Psalm 69 when he cried out, I thirst. And a quick went and got a sponge and put it on a stick, dipped it in vinegar, and held it up to his mouth. Finally, towards the end of those three hours, Jesus said, It's finished. It's done. It's complete. What's complete? Being made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It's finished. He did it. He cried... My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Ever feel like God's forsaken you? Hmm? Of course you do. I feel that way a lot more times than I want to. So did David. In fact, when you read Psalm 22 this afternoon, when you do your homework, and you read Psalm 69, you're going to find that both of them start out with, God, why are you forsaking me? Why don't you speak to me? Why don't you talk to me? Why don't you help me? Why don't you get me out of this mess? Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? As the Father turned His back on sin. When Jesus became sin. Then He said, it's finished.
I've paid the price. It's done. And about three o'clock in the afternoon, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his spirit. No man took it from him. No man killed Jesus. Jesus freely gave up his eternal righteous life. That's the other part of the cross, folks. Why did he give it up? So that you could receive it. He did it. So you could have it. So that you could be a brand new person. Not the same person you've always thought of yourself as being all your life. Not that person you've tried to tweak here and there and make look good or feel good by various schemes and plans. A brand new person created in righteousness and true holiness. A brand new person just like Jesus. That's who He made you to be on the cross. And He said, It's finished. It's done. Matthew tells us, as well as the others, that at that moment, when He gave up His life, that heavy curtain, that ornate curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the very presence of God, where the Ark of the Covenant was, that huge, very thick, ornate curtain was torn in half from the top to the bottom. Signifying that the way into the very presence of a holy and righteous God had just been opened up by the one who gave his life up. At that same time, the graves of believers opened up. Believers that had gone on. Believers who were dead. At His death, the graves opened up and they came out of the tombs. Hundreds of them. After their resurrection, those same believers, raised up just like Lazarus was, went into the city of Jerusalem and gave witness to all the city. Can you imagine a hundred Lazaruses running around the city? What I've given you is just an overview of the events and the order of the events of the cross. 
But the meaning of the cross, I can't give to you. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Only the Spirit of God can convince you, can teach you, can empower you, can enlighten you. Only the Spirit of God can convince you that Jesus paid for your sins and made you a brand new person. Totally righteous. Secure in God's love. Significant in His plan. One who will never lose. No matter what. So as we close today, I want you to join me in prayer. That the Spirit would do that very thing. That He would this day open your eyes just a little more to the person God has made you to be by the wondrous cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we come into Your presence, we worship You. We are in awe of You, Father. And Your Son Jesus, and what You did on that cross. Father, we are so ignorant concerning the personal application of the cross to our lives. We confess that ignorance to You. And also, Father, we tell You we want to learn. We want to know. And we ask that Your Spirit right now would open our hearts and our minds, convince us, as only You can do, the significance of the cross to our lives. Help us understand it in a deeper, more personal and meaningful way that we might experience fully the height, the breadth, the length, the width and depth of your love that we might be set free to love one another. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Go by the lost and found and see that which is lost and see if you can find it. All right? Appreciate you all being here. Lord bless you. Do your homework Saturday. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 